Welcome to NTD Evening News. Our top story tonight, former President Trump is expected to get a major endorsement. It's likely to boost his lead over Nikki Haley. Iris Tao is in New Hampshire with the latest on their rivalry and fresh talk about Trump's potential VP pick. And in Trump legal matters, the former president asked the Supreme Court to end ballot challenges once and for all. Trump's attorneys are asking the high court to overturn a Colorado decision that would remove Trump from the ballot. Meanwhile, in Massachusetts, a group of ballot challengers are trying to get their case expedited. Entity's Arlene Richards has the latest updates. Winter storms are barreling across the U.S., blamed for dozens of deaths nationwide. But forecasters say the end is in sight. The largest pro-life rally in America braving the elements at the nation's capital. Tens of thousands from across the country today gathering to support the rights of the unborn. Sam Wong takes us there. Criticizing the World Economic Forum while speaking at the event, two speakers made worldwide headlines this week for their brazen comments at the meeting in Switzerland. Arian Pazdar has more on what they said. This is NTD Evening News. Live from our NTD Global Headquarters in New York City. Here is Tiffany Meyer. Good evening and thank you for joining us tonight. A blow to Nikki Haley's campaign just four days before the New Hampshire primary. Trump is expected to secure another key endorsement from a former rival in the presidential race, as polls show an increasing Trump lead. Joining us now live on the ground in New Hampshire is NTD's White House correspondent Iris Tao. Good evening, Iris. What is the latest in the race there and what are we expecting tonight? Good evening to you, Tiv, as well. So tonight, as former President Trump is campaigning here again in Concord, New Hampshire, Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina, who dropped out of the 2024 race last November, is expected to endorse Trump on the stage. Here's what Senator Scott posted on X just moments ago. Watch. For the announcement tonight, just tune in, pay attention, listen closely, and let's talk about four more years. An endorsement from Senator Tim Scott would deal a major blow to Nikki Haley, who actually asked the South Carolina governor appointed Scott to the Senate back in 2012. It would also mean that Trump is getting the support of both GOP senators from Nikki Haley's home state, which is South Carolina. It also means that Trump's getting the support of another former presidential rival. That's in addition to Vivek Ramaswamy and Doug Burgum, who both endorsed Trump. Meanwhile, Nikki Haley, who's campaigning here in New Hampshire today, again, tries to draw a contrast between herself and Trump, trying to appeal to the independent and undeclared voters here who can actually vote in this state's primary. But GOP Senator J.D. Vance, who was campaigning just here moments ago for Trump, told me that he expects Nikki Haley to lose. Watch. Do you want to go with a small amount that you keep pushing people away? Or do you want to go with a conservative that knows how to talk to moderates and independents? Do you think Trump will have still an overwhelming lead here? Or do you think it's going to be a tighter race between Trump and Haley? I think Donald Trump's going to win New Hampshire. And uh, I think it's interesting that a couple of weeks ago, Nikki Haley's allies were all saying she needed to win New Hampshire. And now their message is a strong second uh, could somehow deliver her the nomination. That's completely preposterous. 
And a new tracking poll here in New Hampshire actually shows that Trump is slightly widening his lead over Nikki Haley. Actually, just days before the primary next Tuesday, Trump's polling at 52 percent, while Nikki Haley is polling at 35 percent. Meanwhile, on potential VP picks for Trump, we know that among the ones being discussed, at least according to media reports, there are Senator J.D. Vance, who was just here, and also now Senator Tim Scott, as well as Congresswoman Elise Stefanik, who will be here campaigning for Trump on Saturday. Saturday. And we also talked to a few Trump supporters here about what they prefer. Watch. I do like Vivek Ramaswamy. I do think he's an excellent speaker. He's very smart. I think Vivek is too ambitious for a vice president's seat. I think Christy Noem would be an awesome vice president. Meanwhile, Trump has said himself that he actually already knew who his VP pick would be, but wouldn't tell us just yet. So a lot to watch for in the coming days, as some of these potential candidates in the talks are going to campaign here in New Hampshire for Trump. Back to you, Tiff. Iris, thank you for that update. And the first in the nation primary in New Hampshire is coming up next week. Make sure you don't miss our special coverage. Join NTD Steve Lance and myself for another exciting election night on the Nation of Science 2024. Exclusive on the ground access and special guests. Watch the action live on Tuesday, January 23rd at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Former President Trump urges the U.S. Supreme Court to prevent chaos. In a court filing Thursday, Trump's attorneys appealed a decision by Colorado's highest court to remove his name from the state's primary ballot. Meanwhile, over a hundred members of Congress support the former president's effort. Entity's Arlene Richards has more. And, uh, as you former President Trump says he's not an insurrectionist, and that's what his attorneys argued in a Supreme Court filing Thursday. The filing is part of Trump's appeal of the Colorado Supreme Court's decision to remove his name from the state's ballot. The lower court ruled in December that Trump had violated Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, which prevents insurrectionists from holding office. In the brief, Trump's lawyers warned not stopping the nationwide movement for ballot disqualification could unleash chaos and bedlam. They said 60 lawsuits or administrative challenges have been filed to block Trump from ballots. Notably, a group of Republican lawmakers also on Thursday signed on to their own Supreme Court brief. More than 100 lawmakers, including Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell and Senator Ted Cruz, made similar arguments against the Colorado court's decision. Trump's attorneys are asking the Supreme Court to reverse the Colorado court ruling and put a swift and decisive end to these ballot disqualification efforts. In Massachusetts, another challenge to the former president's ballot eligibility is underway. The challengers are relying on the same insurrection arguments, but the state ballot law commission must first decide whether or not it has the authority to review the case. The challengers are asking the commission to make a speedy decision by January 22nd. They argue that failure to make a decision by Monday would have cascading effects on other deadlines and processes. The former president's attorney wants the complaint dismissed. While Trump is trying to stop states from kicking him off their ballots, the Department of Justice wants to punish a Trump ally. Federal prosecutors said in a court filing Thursday that former Trump White House advisor Peter Navarro should spend six months behind bars. Navarro was convicted of criminal contempt of Congress last year for rejecting a subpoena to testify before Congress. In addition to prison time, the DOJ is asking that Navarro be fined $200,000. He is scheduled to be sentenced on January 25th. Arlene Richards, NTD News. 
More student loan debt wiped out. President Biden making his latest move to skirt last year's Supreme Court ruling. NTD's Melina Weiskup has more on the winners and losers of this debt cancellation. President Biden has declared that to date nearly $137 billion don't have to be paid back by borrowers. The latest cancellation totaling to $4.9 billion. So that obtaining higher education provides Americans with opportunity and prosperity, not unimaginable burdens of student loan debt. This as the Education Department fails a financial audit for the second year in a row. Federal student aid is effectively the nation's largest consumer lender. So a failed financial audit there is a massive problem that far too many people are ignoring. 73,000 Americans are off the hook in this latest round, including public servants like teachers, firefighters, and nurses. To get student loan borrowers to, uh, the relief they need to reach their dreams. But critics say these cancellations aren't free. He is not really canceling debt so much that he's transferring the burden of student loan debt away from borrowers and onto the rest of the public. Since the Supreme Court struck down Biden's broader debt cancellation plan last year, the president has been tweaking and expanding the rules of existing programs to skirt around the high court's ruling. If he really wanted to do this in a constitutional way, he would go to Congress and ask for their approval and permission. President Biden and Education Secretary Cardona have instead tried to enact backdoor loan forgiveness. Debt cancellation was a major campaign strategy for President Biden in 2020 and could yet again be invoked during this election year. Reporting from Washington, D.C., Melina Weiskopf, NTD News. Winter storms are battering the east and west coasts today with another round of frigid temperatures. The two-week icy plunge is causing power outages, slick roads, and people freezing to death. From Oregon to Tennessee, the weather is about to get better, however, as forecasters say a thaw is coming. Across the country, at least 50 people have died during the past two weeks because of the winter storms. Forecasters say this new system could drop anywhere between one to three inches of snow across a wide area, with some places getting up to six inches. Baltimore, New York and Washington, D.C. are already seeing snow as the storm moves across the Midwest and into the Northeast through tonight. Dangerous road conditions are forcing school closures. Thousands of flights have been delayed or canceled, stranding passengers. According to the National Weather Service, we can expect a winter thaw, with the forecast showing above average temperatures across most of the country. In the nation's capital today, pro-life activists from all across the country gathered for the annual March for Life rally. Trudging through the snow, they had one message to value and protect all human life starting from conception. NTD's Sam Wong has the details. We're here at the 51st annual March for Life rally here in Washington, D.C. And right now the snow is piling up on the sidewalk, but that clearly didn't stop anybody from joining the crowd. And today, hundreds and thousands of people, pro-lifers from all across the country are convening for this one event. And they're all gathering here for one mission, to defend the sanctity of life, both born and unborn. It's the largest pro-life rally in America. This time every year is just breathtaking to get out there and to see all of the young people and their energy. They know that this is the human rights issue of our time and they'll do anything to stop it. On Friday, tens of thousands from all walks of life packing the streets of the nation's capital. Trudging through the snow, a crowd of pro-life advocates stretching from the National Mall all the way down to the Supreme Court. Former staffers of the abortion industry were among them. 
The day that a young couple came and told me that they had changed their mind and they wanted to keep their baby, and I was absolutely overwhelmed with joy for them. Honestly, just the grace of our Lord moved me, and it's because of Him I'm standing here today. I don't really have any other explanation. But for those of us who have courage to encourage one another, um, and, and we just have to fight the good fight. The rally comes more than a year after a landmark victory for the pro-life movement, when Roe v. Wade was overturned by the Supreme Court. But to some lawmakers, the fight is far from over. According to Congressman Chris Smith, under the Freedom of Access to Clinic Entrance Act, pro-life activists could lose their pensions for protesting and praying outside of abortion facilities. They can now charge you and, and bring felonious acts against you for doing that. Um, and and um, you could lose your 401k. And where does all the money go? It doesn't go to the Treasury. When, when you're prosecuted, it goes to the Planned Parenthood Clinic. Now, when you object to a, an unjust law, it is the greatest respect for law. And that's what pro-lifers are saying. James Harden is the president of Compass Care, a pro-life pregnancy center. Last year, one of his facilities in Buffalo, New York, was firebombed and vandalized. But Harden told me that his case has since been sitting in the DOJ's backlog. The progress basically came to a halt. We had to actually file a lawsuit against the local police department uh, because they were under the thumb of the FBI and they were slow walking the investigation. They let all the leads go cold and die. Harden urged presidential candidates to embrace the pro-life message and protect all people equally from womb to tomb. Reporting from Washington, D.C., Sam Wong, NTD News. The annual meeting of the World Economic Forum is wrapping up today. Two speakers made global headlines this week for criticizing the event. NTD's Arian Pastar brings you the highlights from both speeches. Argentina's new president, Javier Milei, spoke at this year's World Economic Forum. He said Western elites want to trade freedom for collectivism. The Western world is in danger. And it is in danger because those who are supposed to have to defend the values of the West are co-opted by a vision of the world that inexorably leads to socialism and thereby to poverty. Conservatives praised Miele's remarks online. A political activist wrote, Miele demolishes socialism in front of a bunch of socialists. Now, Kevin Roberts, who's the president of the Heritage Foundation, a conservative think tank, also spoke at the event, and he criticized the World Economic Forum as he was describing what the next Republican White House administration should look like. Take a look. I will be candid and say that the agenda that every single member of the administration needs to have is to compile a list of everything that's ever been proposed at the World Economic Forum <laughs> and object all of them wholesale. He added that the goal of such a list would be to take away the power of unelected bureaucrats. And the host of the talk later said that the World Economic Forum stands up for liberal democracy, while alleging that former President Trump does the opposite. Well, it's laughable that you would or anyone would describe Davos as protecting liberal democracy. It's equally, Standing up for it. <clears throat> it's, it's, it's equally laughable to use the word dictatorship at Davos. And, and aim that at President Trump. In fact, I think that's absurd. Roberts named five topics in particular that he says political players mislead people about and that he believes former President Trump would handle better if re-elected. Those are immigration, public safety in major cities, climate change, the threat China poses to free countries around the globe, and cross-sex ideologies and procedures, which are becoming more and more prevalent. Ariane Pastar, NTD News. 
Coming up, flames erupt from a cargo plane shortly after takeoff. More on what we know so far about the Boeing engine disaster. Actor Alec Baldwin facing new charges over the fatal shooting on a movie set. Find out what prompted prosecutors to bring up the case again. AI chatbots are especially useful for computer programming, says Sam Altman on Bill Gates' podcast. The CEO of OpenAI says he's most excited about current and future impacts. And the age of the oldest dog ever is being questioned, sparking debates on what kind of diet is best for dogs. We'll take a closer look at the controversy after the break. Welcome back. An emergency landing in Miami as flames erupt from a Boeing 747. The FAA will now investigate the Atlas Air incident. NTD's Stephanie Sakal has the details. A cargo plane experienced an engine malfunction shortly after takeoff but made a safe landing at Miami International Airport on Thursday night. Atlas Air Worldwide confirmed the safe landing around 10.32 p.m. following the incident. Video footage circulating on social media showed the plane descending with sparks. While officials reported the engine catching fire, the exact cause is under investigation. According to CBS News Miami, the crew reportedly followed standard procedures and no injuries were reported during the incident. Atlas Air emphasized safety as a top priority and announced plans for a thorough inspection to determine the cause of the malfunction. Stephanie Sikal, NTD News. Actor Alec Baldwin is indicted again over the 2021 fatal shooting on the set of the movie Rust. A New Mexico grand jury has charged Baldwin with two counts of involuntary manslaughter. One count is based on negligent use of a firearm and the other alleges felony misconduct with, quote, the total disregard or indifference for the safety of others. Both are fourth-degree felonies. Should he be convicted, Baldwin could face up to 18 months in prison and a $5,000 fine. Defense attorneys for Baldwin indicated they'll fight the charges. Last year, New Mexico prosecutors dropped involuntary manslaughter charges against Baldwin. They said at the time that they could not proceed under the existing time constraints. This time, special prosecutors brought the case months after receiving a new analysis of the gun that Baldwin used. Sam Altman, CEO of OpenAI, says he is excited about how artificial intelligence can benefit computer programming. He recently told Bill Gates that AI will help increase productivity in the software industry. Entities Virginia Gibson has more. Right now, maybe we can speed up a programmer 3x. On Bill Gates's Unconfuse Me podcast, OpenAI CEO Sam Altman says he's most excited about how generative artificial intelligence will influence the future of computer programming or coding. Generative AI, referring to chatbots like ChatGPT, which can intelligently answer almost any prompt you give it. If you make a programmer three times more effective, it's not just that they can write they can do three times more stuff. It's they can, at that high level of abstraction, 
using more of their brain power, they can now think of totally different things. Generative AI can help review written code and generate code and answer questions. Software engineer Ankit Anchlia uses ChatGPT and BARD every day. If I go to the Google search, it would take time, some time to find the exact answer versus uh, with this generative AI tools, uh, I could just find the answer like in 30 seconds. He says he uses these AI tools mostly for manual and tedious tasks, such as looking up syntax. Syntax refers to the correct combination of symbols, keywords, and operators that are used in a coding language. But it's not all sunshine and roses. ChatGPT gives the wrong answer almost half of the time, says a UC Berkeley and Stanford University study. I've seen plenty of mistakes. Uh, whenever I see the answer, I just try to make sure it's correct. So I do my own testing before I do using the ChatGPT answer. Altman told Gates that the current generation of AI models are the stupidest models there will ever be. He sees a very steep improvement curve. Someday, maybe there's an AI where you can say, you know, go start and run this company for me. Uh, and then someday there's maybe an AI where you can say, like, go discover new physics. Gates suggested that humanity will have to adapt faster than it ever has before. Altman says that each technological revolution has gotten faster, and this may be the fastest by far. Virginia Gibson, NTD News. The record for oldest dog ever is being challenged, and Guinness World Records has announced an investigation. The scrutiny has fueled ongoing debates on what diet and lifestyle are healthiest for man's best friend. NTD's Jason Blair has more. This is Bobby. He lived on a farm in a village in Portugal with his owner, Lionel Costa. In February 2023, Bobby was recognized by Guinness World Records as the oldest dog ever recorded at age 30. Costa said that Bobby had home-cooked meals, never wore a leash, and got lots of fresh air, saying, quote, Bobby eats what we eat. Bobby made national headlines when he died in October at 31. However, days after Bobby's death, The Guardian reported that Danny Chambers, a member of the Royal College of Veterinary Surgeons, claimed that he and his 18,000 colleagues doubted Bobby's age and demanded irrefutable proof from Guinness. Chambers, who is also running to be a member of parliament in the UK, also said that Bobby has been used as an example by activists who, quote, have long campaigned that dog food is killing pets and that raw feeding is healthier. The commonly found package-style dog food he's referring to started being widely used after World War II. Canine herbalist Rita Hogan said she doesn't think it's an abnormality for Bobby to live until 31. I think it's a product of fresh air, low stress, minimally processed food, low vaccination, um, and uh, good vet care, good dental cleanings, a, a, a relationship with his vet, a relationship with his community, and someone that loved him. Hogan said she's had a dog and a cat both live into their 20s. Just the other day I was talking to someone and I mentioned that I had put my cat down at, he was just turning 23. He was like two, two months shy. And it was a big deal. I'm like that, a cat living to 23 is not a big deal. Like they should be living past 20. Another expert's office alleged that a lobby organization is behind the doubt of Bobby's age. Dana Adams, an admin assistant for popular veterinarian Karen Becker, told Wired magazine that, quote, a lobby organization waited until the poor little guy's cremation day to raise questions to Guinness about additional testing. 
It's not clear if she is referring to Chambers Group or another party. Adams also said, quote, those of us in the pet space know it never goes well when you threaten a multi-billion dollar empire, alluding that the lobbyists are connected to the pet food industry. They told NTD, quote, while our review is ongoing, we have decided to temporarily pause applications on both the record titles for Oldest Dog Living and Oldest Dog Ever until all of our findings are in place and have been communicated. Guinness did not elaborate on what triggered their investigation. Bobby is said to be born in 1992 in Portugal due to it not being required for dogs to be registered until 2020. It might be difficult to provide hard proof of Bobby's age. Jason Blair, NTD News. Coming up, the Biden administration says the U.S. is not fighting a regional war in the Middle East. Our guest disagrees. Here are his assessment of the current situation. Public health authorities and China under scrutiny again for their alleged lack of transparency during COVID-19. Our guest says we need a healthy degree of skepticism. Find out more after the break here on NTD News. Welcome back. If you're just joining us now, here are some today's top headlines. Senator Tim Scott, who dropped out of the race for the White House, is expected to endorse former President Trump. Trump, Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis all campaigned in New Hampshire days ahead of the primary. Trump's legal team told the Supreme Court that kicking Trump off the ballot would lead to chaos and bedlam. This was while another challenge to Trump's ballot eligibility is underway in Massachusetts. Winter storms battered the U.S. from coast to coast with another round of frigid temperatures. Across the country, at least 50 people have died during the past two weeks because of the cold. Two speakers criticized the World Economic Forum while speaking at the event. They are Argentina's president and the president of the Heritage Foundation. They called out socialist policies and said the event promotes deception about global issues. We have more updates on tensions in the Middle East between Iran and Pakistan. Iran said today that it successfully carried out an air defense drill. The drill involved drones designed to intercept hostile targets. It focused on an area along Iran's southern, board, southern coast. Just one day ago, Pakistan launched retaliatory airstrikes against targets inside Iran. Pakistan said they hit terrorist hideouts. At least nine people were killed. Pakistan strikes came two days after Iran launched its own missiles into Pakistan. The tit-for-tat strikes were the highest profile cross-border intrusions in recent years. They have raised alarm over wider instability in the Middle East. Iran and Pakistan's foreign ministers had a call earlier today, and Pakistan expressed its willingness to work with Iran on all issues. Joining us now to discuss the current tension in the Middle East, we have Kash Patel. He's senior advisor to former President Trump for national security, defense and intelligence. How does he see the Biden administration's policies in the Middle East compared to Trump's? Kash Patel, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you back on the show. Hey, it's great to be with you to kick off this Friday. Now, we saw Pakistan and Iran have agreed to de-escalate. This is after they were trading airstrikes. So far, there's no such message coming out of the Iran-backed Houthis or the Israel-Hamas war. Now, a piece in The Independent is saying that the U.S. is now fighting a regional war in the Middle East, even if the Biden administration won't admit it. Do you agree with that assessment? 
I don't agree with any assessment on the national security front that the Biden administration makes because they are the ones that have created these new enemies and these new alliances with their disastrous national security policy. I mean, we have to take a pause for a second. Iran, the world's largest state sponsor of terror, is supposedly launching strikes into Pakistan, who houses the world's largest terrorist organizations and individuals. And now they're going to become allies. I don't believe any of these narratives that any of these folks are putting together because their number one interest is to defeat American and American interests. And Joe Biden can't paste over that disastrous consequence of his national security policy by going to the media and saying, everything's fine, nothing's to see here. I just want to remind the audience that there are two dead American soldiers as a result of a tragic operation in the Red Sea that Biden and Austin should never have launched. Hmm. And now taking a step back, we saw under former President Trump, the Abraham Accords or peace in the mm -hmm. Middle East, something that many said was impossible. Now, what did Trump do that worked? It's a multifaceted effort. The, the, the diplomatic achievement was the Middle East Peace Accords. It's a wonderful monumental achievement. But in order to create that space, that's the purpose of your Department of Defense, your intelligence community, your national security apparatus, is to go in traditionally and create diplomatic space for you to work in. And that's where President Trump and Jared Kushner were so brilliant in that diplomatic space, getting countries who had never spoken before diplomatically to not only speak, but establish diplomatic relations, mainly Israel and so many of the Middle Eastern countries. And we were going to expand out from there. And we asked Joe Biden to continue it. And of course, he said, no, we're not going to continue it. So. I think when you have a strong national security footing, because the world believed that Donald Trump was a powerhouse when it came to national security. So when he told Iran, stop building your nuclear arsenal, when he told our enemies to stop compiling efforts with terrorists, they listened because we would kill the terrorists and suffocate them through sanctions, through the global banking system and international trade. That's the exact opposite of what Joe Biden's doing here. He's given Iran money, he's given them trade, and now they have the ability to buy weapons with their new $6 billion from everyone. Hmm. And now, Senator Tim Scott has just endorsed the former president, former President Trump. This is ahead of the New Hampshire primary. Now, several people, pundits, conservatives all over are already saying that Trump is the likely Republican nominee. And now, if he does get that second term as president, what would he do to end these tensions that we are seeing in the Middle East? I think it's an amazing achievement that the, the senator from South Carolina, Tim Scott, is endorsing Donald Trump, and I think rightly so, over the former governor of his home state, Nikki Haley, for the reasons that answer your question, because America is craving national security. Donald Trump, you don't have to take a chance on Donald Trump. He's in the unique position of having been president. So not only can he say, I will do this, I did this. He sealed the border. He stopped the drug traffickers. He shut down Chinese fentanyl from coming in and killing our children. He made the illegal immigrants stay at bay south of our border, and he took on the human smugglers so that we wouldn't have any more child sex trafficking. That's just south of the border. Then we get to Iran, where he issued crippling sanctions, suffocated their economy, and let's not forget, on a kinetic effort from the military and intelligence standpoint, he took out Soleimani, he took out Baghdadi, two of the world's literally largest terrorists responsible for so many American and American ally debts. Those are just some of the things that President Trump prioritized, and that's the difference. Joe Biden's priority is climate change, DEI, and, and I don't know what else, but it's not national security and they can't paint their way to a national security success by going to Davos and lying about it in the mainstream media. And I think the reason so many people are endorsing Donald Trump ahead of New Hampshire and thereafter is because those policies that he's advocated and put forth are front and center, and they've been shown to win for America. Kash Patel, thank you so much for your time.
Thanks. Have a great weekend. The Chinese regime's response to the CCP virus is again under scrutiny. New documents show that the genetic sequence of the virus was submitted to an NIH database two weeks before the Chinese regime officially disclosed it. To find out more about the lack of transparency in the pandemic response, we sat down with Dr. Scott Atlas. He is a former advisor of the White House Coronavirus Task Force and currently senior fellow at Stanford's Hoover Institution. Dr. Scott Atlas, thank you so much for joining us. Great to be back on the show. I'm happy to be here. Now, there are more and more reports coming out, including from the Wall Street Journal, that a Chinese lab had sequenced COVID-19 two weeks before Beijing alerted the World Health Organization. Now, what would have happened if the world had known that information earlier? Well, it's it's not clear, but uh, how we would have reacted differently or or even better. But the earlier, the better to know what to do. Well, I think it really the lesson here points out something more important than what we would have done. And that is we heard repeatedly people in the United States as well as in the WHO praising China for transparency. In February of 2020, we had a bunch of famous virologists. NIH-funded virologists in the United States write to Lancet praising China, saying they're doing everything they can to inform the world. We had Dr. Anthony Fauci praise China's transparency repeatedly in early 2020. We had Tedros, the head of the WHO, saying China's a model for transparency in January 2020, February 2020, and praising them for the way they're handling the pandemic and giving the information, even when China blocked the WHO's own investigation of the records of the labs in China in January of 2021. So uh, I think it just highlights something very important. The world needs transparency and the main function, one of the main functions of the World Health Organization is to get information to the public. They grossly failed, Tedros the leader failed, and he was frankly lying about China's transparency we uh, we can see that and conclude that there's a lot of corruption at the top. We can't have that, particularly in health emergencies. Expanding on your point, given Beijing's history and lack of transparency, how should the world deal with info and data that is coming out of China? Well, we have to have a, a what I would call a, a very healthy degree of skepticism about what what the data is coming out of China. And I think generally most scientists understand that. This was an instance where the the official uh, international health organizations were really uh, sort of confusing the public by instead of being skeptical, instead of demanding transparency, they were simply claiming China was being transparent. And that was really harmful, particularly when our own Anthony Fauci, head of our uh, sort of infectious disease part of the United States NIH, and really the de facto leader of the management of the pandemic uh, was falsely praising China. We have to know why the U.S., of course, as we know, uh, funded a lot of the research, more than a couple million dollars worth of research directly or indirectly in Wuhan itself on coronaviruses. Uh, So it's not clear if this was a cover-up or what, but uh, we as people need to demand more transparency, first from our own people who are employees at the NIH, 
the CDC and the FDA and in our government. But secondly, we need to really hold a candle to the World Health Organization. The U.S. is the biggest funder of the WHO. Uh, we need to have oversight uh, or we can't keep throwing uh, taxpayer money at harmful organizations that are either corrupt or uh, at least uh, ineffective. When it comes to something like the pandemic that we saw and experienced, why is the data sequencing of the virus so important when it comes to, say, creating a vaccine? Well, there, there's there's two basic reasons. Number one, uh, we want to understand the uh, biological immunity that exists or the protection from related viruses. Uh, secondly, we need it to develop drugs uh, and poten potentially vaccines. Uh, and, and third, we need to understand it in terms of predicting its, uh, its fatality rate, predicting its behavior as it goes on and spreads. Because as we know, as we knew beforehand, viral respiratory infections do not stop spreading by virtue of lockdowns, do not stop spreading by virtue of masks. So we want to understand the biology and get as much information as possible, both in terms of whatever prevention can be done, but in terms of accuracy of predicting the behavior and in developing remedies. Now, zooming out, the American Cancer Society is saying that cancer cases are expected to surpass 2 million this year, which is a record high. What is driving this? Well, this is a, a very uh, alarming trend. Uh, it's a trend that's been going on now for you know more than 10 to 20 years. And uh, it's very poorly understood why. Uh, there is no magic single answer, but we know the following. We know that uh, obesity is a big driver, or at least associated with cancer. We know that the top three lifestyle conditions, which are cigarette smoking, obesity, and alcohol, in the United States, and in the world really, but in the United States, specifically contribute up to more than 40% of cancers and more than 45% of cancer deaths. Those three lifestyle diseases, those are often control, generally controllable factors. We also couple that with the knowledge that obesity has been uh, dramatically increasing. The U.S. has the, most, the largest fraction of obese people in the world, particularly young people and children. This is very alarming. Maybe 10 years ago, about a third of people between 20 and 40 met criteria for obesity in the United States. And over the, over the next decade, that's risen to over 40%. Over 40% of people between 20 and 40 in the U.S. are obese. I mean, this is a very, very alarming statistic. It's a risk factor. The pathogenesis, meaning the direct mechanism where obesity may cause cancer, is not clear. But it's known that more than a dozen cancers are associated with higher prevalence with obesity. So we need to address what we can address. And what we know is we can address cigarette smoking, which has dramatically declined in the United States. We know we can address obesity. And we've done a very poor job of addressing this in the US. Uh, if I may say, the culture of the United States, the fashion industry, has been not just saying obesity is okay, they've been glamorizing obesity. We've had increasing portion sizes in the United States for decades that are way out of control compared to the rest of the world. We can't be afraid to educate the public. One of the key roles of public health officials is to be honest with the public and say it's bad to be fat. 
not because you're a bad person, but because it's very, very bad for your health. And cancer is a significant associated disease with obesity. We need to be very straightforward about that. We need to tell people this is bad, just like we do for cancer, uh, for cigarette smoking, excuse me, and say it's bad for your health to be fat, it's bad to be overweight, and we need to uh, address that both culturally as well as medically. Quite alarming indeed. Dr. Scott Atlas, thank you so much for your time. Okay, thanks for having me. Coming up, artists from around the world showcase their skills at NTD's art competition. The event unfolded with an unexpected twist when it came to the awards. We hear from the contestants. And Sports Illustrated, once one of the most popular magazines in the country, announces major staff layoffs. Dave Martin joins us to discuss its downfall when we come back. Welcome back. NTD wrapped up its sixth international figure painting competition with an award ceremony in New York City, where the paintings have been on display. NTD's Jason Perry attended the event. Hello, everyone. I'm here in New York City at NTD's International Figure Painting Competition. Artists from around the world have displayed a diverse range of techniques, styles, and cultural influences. A total of 60 paintings from 20 countries were selected for the final exhibition held at the Sal Magundi Club. After a review from the judges, surprisingly, there was no gold award given out this year. However, there were three silver awards given out to the three artists who each painted a panel of this triptych, which is a set of three paintings meant to be shown together. I spoke with one of the artists who said it took him two years to paint this right panel. Since painting is something we do every day, I formed a habit. Every day after I get into the studio, I enter into a state of mind for painting, whereas I'm keeping calm and staying undistracted by other things. It's actually a state of calm and peacefulness every day. And this lady, also a Silver Award winner, painted the left panel, which is almost twice her height. She explained how she did it. We'll set up platforms. One is this tall and another this tall, which we step on and paint. The artwork looks different when you are up close or far away. So after I did some painting on the platform, I would come down, adjust the overall structure, and go back to add the details. And this man, a professional painter, won a bronze medal for his painting of this young girl named Vivian. He said he spent time with Vivian and her family prior to painting it. And the cool thing about Vivian was she, um, she struck me as very confident, um, intelligent, and she gave me hope for the future. And I wanted to portray Vivian as somebody who's going to be you know, bringing, bringing forth the, the upcoming generation, uh, some, somebody that we can trust and be, be uh, uh, you know, have some confidence in. And the judges also handed out 35 honorable mentions. This man, also a professional painter, shared his thoughts on the event. So I realized that this competition is really unique in that it places an emphasis on really letting classical aesthetics and ideals of truth and beauty, they put that at the top of their priority list. And these are principles that are very important to me, so it makes me want to support and make sure to promote this competition, to participate in this competition, because if we want to get more of this in the art world, then we have to recognize 
recognize the players who are making sure to prioritize these values and to advocate for these values. So it made me want to come back again because I think what they're doing is important. We look forward to welcoming you again next year for another showcase of exceptional figure painting. Jason Perry, NTD News, New York. And now for your sports news, we're joined by NTD's Dave Martin. Dave, some big news in sports media today, as the iconic Sports Illustrated magazine will be laying off a significant number of staff. Now, was this a surprise announcement? I mean, it surprised me anyway, although if you're watching them closely, it really wasn't a positive direction they were heading in. They were forever a weekly publication, started back in 1954, went to bi-weekly in 2018, and then down to a monthly in 2020. They also just fired their CEO last month after the magazine was accused of publishing articles generated by AI. They also had been under some fire for putting some transgender models and plus-size models on the front of their swimsuit issues the past few years. Plenty of users noted that on X or Twitter today. Now, I could compare that to Dylan Mulvaney's um, impact on Bud Light sales, but SI, really, they were already treading water. But for anyone who grew up reading the magazine, um, it's a sad day, and it's heyday. It really was the best. Well, now, tomorrow starts another big playoff weekend in the NFL with four games spread over two days. Now, is there any particular matchup you're most looking forward to? Yeah, Kansas City-Buffalo. I think most are looking forward to this because it's become an ongoing rivalry. And you have the defending Super Bowl champion Chiefs on the road in a tough environment. Now, this will be the third time in the last four years these two have met in the postseason. The last time was an instant classic. Four lead changes in the final two minutes. Two of those in the last 15 seconds. I mean, that's unheard of. Kansas City ended up winning in overtime. Now, that game is on a short list of greatest playoff game, uh, games ever. I'm not expecting a repeat. Hopefully, it's at least intense. Now, this will be the first time in the playoffs anyway that they meet in Buffalo. Um, amazingly, this will mark Patrick Mahomes' first career playoff game. and He's already won two Super Bowls already. Now, it's an even matchup, I would say. Both teams have great quarterbacks. The Chiefs probably have a better uh, defense, but they're lacking playmakers on offense that Buffalo has. I think Buffalo takes this round in a close one. Well, now, 22 years ago today was a memorable playoff game as the Raiders lost to the Patriots in controversial fashion known as the Tuck Rule Game. Can you explain the controversy? Yeah, most of the controversy is that no one seemed about to know about this tuck rule or understand it anyway at the time. They certainly would be afterwards. In any case, the Patriots were trailing the Raiders 13-10, less than two minutes left in a playoff game. It was snowing in New England too, so not much offense, harder to hang on to the ball. Anyway, the Patriots had the ball when Charles Woodson sacked Tom Brady, which knocked the ball loose. The Raiders recovered it, so of course, you know, they're celebrating because this is essentially game over. The Patriots are out of timeouts. They can't stop the clock. It's just a matter of time now. But the refs reviewed the play, then invoked this little-known tuck rule, saying that because Brady was in the process of tucking the ball back towards his body after starting the throwing motion when the ball came out, it's an incomplete pass instead of a fumble, so it's Patriots ball. So in new life, they march down the field, kick the field goal to tie the game and send it to overtime, and then they win in overtime. Now, Brady admitted sometime later he thought it was a fumble. He had no idea about this tuck rule. Of course, he wasn't going to argue. Meanwhile, the Raiders were furious. Uh, the rules were eventually abolished, I think, in 2013, but it was a very memorable playoff game. This is actually Tom Brady's first playoff win, too. Well, Dave, as always, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Tiff. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Good night.